0: Welcome to the second episode of Air Checks. I'm your host, Ty Rosenow. This show focuses on radio shows from old-time radio to current shows written as plays or when a radio show was recorded, a showcase of radio programming that may have been lost over the decades if it hadn't been recorded and preserved for future generations. In the radio and television industry, recordings of radio shows were fairly common anywhere from transcription discs for later replay, or to make sure a commercial had been played on the air for the salesman to show their client. AirChecks is a three-hour program that is uploaded into a podcast on Saturdays and Sundays for radio stations across the nation, internationally, and for you, the listener. In this first and second episode, I see fitting that I start off with the full compilation put out by the Longines Symphonic Society in 1969, starring Jack Benny and Frank Knight as the hosts. This six-record set, called Golden Memories of Radio, is a good introduction to some of the shows that will be represented on Airchecks. Without further ado, here's Part 7 of the Golden Memories of Radio, entitled, The March Towards World War II.
1: 1936 was an important year in the affairs of the United States. Radio took us outside of our boundaries, and a slow awareness was beginning to overtake Americans that what happened in Europe could act upon our own destiny. This was the year that civil war broke out in Spain. Soon the battle would be drawn as Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin used Spain as the testing ground for weapons of war. It was in the same year that a British monarch died, George V. And perhaps he symbolized the passing of an era, just as the death of Winston Churchill closed the leadership book on World War II.
2: On the coffin lies the crown, the orb, the scepter, and the insignia of the order of the god. As it goes by, the king's god lures the colours and present on behind walks
1: King Edward VIII. In 1937, Edward VIII abdicated.
3: At long last, I am able to say a few words of my own. I have
1: never wanted
3: to withhold anything. But until now, it has not been constitutionally possible for me to speak. But you must believe me when I tell you that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do, without the help and support of the woman I love. And now, We all have a new king. I wish him and you, his people, happiness and prosperity with all my heart. God bless you all. God save
1: the king. To complete the circle of succession, George VI was crowned with the pomp and ceremony that only the English can mount. Here are the final moments as reported live.
4: Frederick Arthur George is now become our only lawful and rightful liege lord, George VI, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, Ireland, and the
5: British dominions beyond the sea, King.
1: Radio news reporting was growing in stature. The march towards World War II began to accelerate. By 1937, the cauldron was simmering as England's Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain went to Munich. This is
3: Max Gordon calling from Munich, Germany. Mm-hmm. It is now eight minutes to two o'clock a.m. local time. Exactly 17 minutes ago, Premier Chamberlain of England's premier, Daladay of France, ward of the assembly room at the first palace here. Benito Mussolini, the Dirty of Italy, followed them shortly afterwards to catch his special train for Italy. The big four conference of Munich has come to
4: a formal close.
6: After my visits to Germany, I realized vividly how Herr Hitler feels that he must champion other Germans. He told me privately, and last night he repeated publicly that after this Sudeten German question is settled, that is the end of Germany's territorial claims in Europe.
1: As the United States became aware of the fallacy of peace in our time, radio news reporting polished its techniques, gained in wisdom, and began to take its place as the recorder of living history. On-the-spot news coverage came of age, and from the archives of the National Broadcasting Company comes an example of radio news reporting at its very best.
7: Ladies and gentlemen, The National Broadcasting Company again this morning brings you a special broadcast from the Navy Yard at Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Eleven miles out in the Atlantic Ocean, near White Island Light, the United States Navy has concentrated ships and equipment in an attempt to rescue 59 officers and men trapped in the submarine squalus. The submarine rescue ship Falcon reached the scene about two hours ago, and those two hours have been occupied in dropping its moorings, anchoring the ship above the spot where the squalus went down. Naval officers here at Portsmouth say they are optimistic concerning the results of rescue operations. Apparently the first attempt to reach the Salkin submarine and his crew will be made in the Navy's rescue chamber, an 18-foot metal cylinder in which the divers are protected by compressed air. Down at the 240-foot level where the squalus rests, the chamber will be attached to the submarine hatch and crew members may enter it eight or 10 at a time for the ascent to the surface. On the Falcon are 22 of the Navy's expert divers. And earlier this morning, 13 other divers put out from the Navy Yard aboard a fast Coast Guard patrol ship. It was just 23 and a half hours ago that the Squalus submerged on what was to be been the routine dive below. An hour later, when the submarine's commander, Lieutenant Oliver Naquin, failed to report his return to the surface, the sister ship Sculpin put out from Portsmouth. Near White Island, light, the Sculpin sighted a distressed smoke signal shot from the Squalus. And a few minutes later, the crew found a signal boy carrying a telephone cable to the submerged ship. The cable snapped, but not until Lieutenant McQueen had reported the after chambers filled with water. That was the last communication until last night, when signals notified the sculpin that conditions on the squalus were good but cold. And now at the microphone beside me is Bill Eddy, NBC television engineer and a former lieutenant in the Navy's submarine service. Bill, I think, first of all, that most everybody is asking the question, what will be the procedure at the scene of the
2: rescue operation? Well, Chick, the Falcon is here, as you know, and she is now engaged in laying down her four anchors preparatory to mooring directly over the stricken submarine. I see. The next step will be to drop grapnels into the deck for guidelines, and down these guidelines, the first diver will probably descend. He will make a preliminary observation report to the surface and get his orders. Then a diving stage will be lowered, bringing one or more additional divers to assist in anchoring the salvage chamber to the torpedo room half.
7: The question all of us are anxious, of course, to know, how long can a modern submarine remain submerged safely?
2: Well, under normal conditions, at least a week. But we have no knowledge of what the conditions are out there on the bottom. Well, could you possibly tell our listeners
7: what might be going on down in that sunken vessel? From your experience with submarines, what would you
2: say the men are doing? Well, first of all, it is pitch black because they appear to be unable to use the forward battery. Lieutenant Naquin has no doubt ordered all hands to lie down in their bunks and cover up so they won't use too much oxygen. We've heard that the ship is in about 240 feet of water. Is that an excessive
7: depth, or in other words, Is it going to be a difficult dive?
2: Well, 240 feet means 105 pounds per square inch. Yes, it's a dangerous dive, but a possible one. Well,
7: all right, thank you very much, Bill Eddy. This special events broadcast has come to you from press headquarters in the Navy Yard at Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where rescue operations are in progress to lift the submarine Squalus from the floor of the Atlantic. Keep tuned to your NBC station for latest developments.
1: The acid test of this newborn technique gained in stature in the months that followed by bringing history, live at the moment it was happening, into the living rooms of America. It was as though destiny was clearing the decks for action. In 1939, Spain fell to insurgent Franco. Pope Pius XI completed his tasks on earth, and Pius XII became spiritual leader of the Catholic Church. The Republic of Czechoslovakia was dissolved. Italy invaded Albania. The New York World's Fair opened. The name Danzig came into the news. On September
8: 1, 1939... Those assembled arise and stand to greet the arrival of the German Führer. The applause greets the few who has just arrived in the call Opera House to address the Reichstag, which has been called an extraordinary session. We are expecting that Prime Minister Goering in a very few moments will open formally the session on the Reichstag. Danzig was and is a German city. All these regions have only Germany to thank for their cultural development.
6: All these to
8: I told the Polish ambassador three weeks ago that if the situation continued as it was, if Danzig were persecuted and were, were attempted by Poland to ruin Danzig economically, the situation could not be tolerated. We interrupt this broadcast of Adolf Hitler's speech just momentarily to report a dispatch from Paris which says that Premier Deladier of France has now called the French Council of Ministers for an emergency meeting which is to take place just 10 minutes from now at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time.
1: Then from London on September 3rd, Neville Chamberlain sorrowfully made this report to the world.
6: I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government With Germany.
1: Franklin Delano Roosevelt recognized the peril to America and worked closely with England's new Prime Minister, Winston Churchill.
3: President Roosevelt wrote out a verse to me in his own handwriting uh, from Longfellow. Sail on, O ship of state. Sail on, O union strong and great. Humanity with all its fears, with all the hopes of future years, is hanging Breathless on thy fate. What is the answer that I shall give in your name to this great man? Give us the tools and we will finish the job.
0: was the March tour of World War II. Here's the -the on-the-spot coverage of sports.
1: As it was with Nero in ancient Rome, we Americans chose to fiddle while the world was catching fire around us. We were in the mood for recreation, and our national pastime was the world of sports, and radio was the making of many sports. Live broadcasts by skilled reporters from the scene of championship contests brought Americans right to ringside, and I must admit that the excitement of hearing a radio report was often far better than seeing it in person. Wherever boxing fans gather, the subject of the long count will still be discussed. The famous fight was between Gene Tunney and Jack Dempsey.
5: Ladies and gentlemen...
9: The fact that I was hit seven times in succession in the seventh round in my contest with Jack Dempsey for the world's heavyweight championship mm-hmm. was one of my luckiest nights as a matter of fact the luckiest night of my life yes I was down I heard the referee count two. I knew I had to get up which was part of my professional obligation but what to do when I got up was the important thing I decided to stay away from Jack, and uh, it was a very wise decision, as the results showed. He winner
5: and still heavyweight champion, Gene Tunney. Well, my
10: thoughts wasn't hoping he would never get up, but unfortunately he did and won the fight. And more power to him! A great boy and a great champion.
1: The first Joe lewis Max Schmeling encounter as it was described by Graham McNamee.
10: Smelling got over two more hard rights to Lewis's jaw and made Lewis give ground, and there Smelling straightened up Lewis with hard right and left to the jaw. He has puffed up Lewis's left cheek, and Lewis is down. Lewis is down, hanging to the ropes, hanging badly. He is a very tired fighter. He is blinking his eyes, shaking his head. The count is done. The fight is over. The fight is over, and Smulling is the winner. Lewis is completely out. They've had to lift him and carry him to his
1: corner. When the rematch came months later, expert opinion was mixed. First, let's hear what Jack Dempsey had to say. Well,
4: it's anybody's fight, but I favor Max Smulling because I saw Joe Lewis work out, and he looks to me
1: like everybody's hitting him. Gene Tunney saw it differently.
9: Well, I believe that uh, if Lewis gets the jump, in the beginning of the fight, he'll win. But if he's going to allow himself to maneuver around by Schmeling, I believe that Schmeling is going to win.
2: Max Baer. Well, I'm stringing along with Lewis this time, although in the last fight I selected Schmeling. As a matter of fact, I want him to win because I want to be the first fighter to regain the heavyweight champion. Max Schmeling.
6: I'm feeling comfortable and in good shape. My walk here at the training camp has put me in the best of condition.
4: Fifteen rounds! for the world's
10: heavyweight championship. Right and left to the head, a left to the jaw, a right to the head, and Donovan is watching carefully. Lewis measures him, right to the body, a left up to the jaw, and Schmeling is down. The count is five, five, six, seven, eight. The men are in the ring. The fight is over on a technical knockout. Max Schmeling is beaten in one round.
4: Four seconds, first round, referee stops it, the winner, and still
5: champion, Go Lewis!
10: I waited
3: two years for the revenge, and now I got
6: it. I'd like to fight Joe lose again. If I have a chance, I will. But once I beat Joe and Joe Lewis beat me.
11: Now we even. And I hope the next time we meet again, I'll beat him again.
1: Sport fans are still talking about the Olympic Games of 1936. They took place in Berlin, Germany, and a young American Negro named Jesse Owen scored an unprecedented triumph in several events. Jesse's victory was an unhappy shock to Olympic host Adolf Hitler, but for us, a national triumph, and for Jesse, a dramatic personal experience. Here he is with announcer
11: Ted Husing. Six boys walked out on the field unnoticed unnoticed because a German boy had won an Olympic victory and the crowd was giving him an ovation that was doing Olympic champion. As we sat there on that bench unnoticed, this is the sight that I saw within that wonderful area. As my eyes wandered across the field, I noticed a green grass, a red track with the white lines. And as my eyes wandered into the sands, I noticed 120,000 people sitting and standing within that great area and as my eyes wandered upward again, I noticed a flag of every nation that was represented there in the Olympic Games underneath that German blue sky. My attention was diverted in that beautiful picture because a whistle had been blown, and we were to assemble around a starter to receive our...
8: Here are the lanes, ladies and gentlemen, from the inside to the outside, Jesse Owens on the pole, Lenart Sandberg of Sweden next to him in second lane, Eric Borchmeier, the German Borchmeier, Jesse Owens is running in white shoes today. Ralph is running in black shoes. And here they go, down in the mark.
11: The starter stepped back about 10 paces, and he hollered in a loud German voice, for Kretzer. And when he hollered for every man went to his mark. Adjusting our hands and our feet, the starter suddenly said in a soft voice, Fertig. And when he hollered "Vertik," every man came to a set position. The wind is blowing here. It's a little bit chilly. They're set. Gun sounds in the Guns down from their own way. And Jesse Owens comes down with Ralph Metcalf. The boys ran neck and neck for 50 yards. Ralph Metcalf of Marquette University was leading the field at the 70-yard mark, and from the 70 to the 90, Ralph and I ran neck
12: and neck.
10: Owen starts moving. He's a yard or two out in front. Metcalf is coming second up on him. It's Owen, Metcalf, and Ozendorf. Metcalf came in second. Ozendorf
11: third. And... For some unknown reason, I beat Ralph Metcalf of Marquette University in this most historic event. But the greatest honor came. As we stood up there on that pedestal of victory, and after we had knelt and received the wreath of victory from the German maidens, and standing our face in the stands, from a far away distance we could hear the strains of the Stars Bangle Banner. As the people in the stands stood, the Germans gave the Nazi salute, the Americans gave the American salute, and as we three on the pedestal of victory did a left face, I noticed the Stars and Stripes rising higher and higher. And the higher the stars and stripes rose, the of the strains of the Star Spangled Banner were heard. And then and there I realized my ambition of eight years to become a member of Uncle Sam's Olympic team to emerge as a victor in the Olympic Games provided me with my greatest moment throughout my whole athletic career.
1: International tensions again intruded into the world of sports in 1937. The semifinals of the Davis Cup matches that summer had America's Don Budge pitted against Germany's Baron Gottfried von Cramm. Don Budge describes the scene immediately after his narrow victory.
12: As Cramm and I were leaving the locker room, the telephone rang and Cramm was called back and it was Hitler calling him to wish him good luck in this particular match. Of course, it was quite exciting because the fellow who had charge of getting the players out on the court on time had both of us by the arm. He wouldn't let cram go and cram was saying, yes, my inferior, this and that. And it got to be quite a tense moment. However, we finally did get out on the court and uh, I managed to win the third and fourth. And right away I was down four, one in the fifth set. I decided I had to get the net position away from him in the worst way. So with this in mind, I made up my mind. I would try to return his serve and go in behind it. Well, as luck had it, I did manage to, get my returns in, get into the net, and make some winning volleys. I broke his serve, and from there on it went to six all. Finally, at seven, six, I broke his serve. And after six match points, finally won the thing, uh, after a great struggle, falling down on the ground on my last point, but making the shot nonetheless. But as... We shook hands at the net. I'll never forget what Cram said. He said, Don, he said, I'm very happy that I played so well against you, whom I like so much, and it was the best tennis I've ever played in my life, so congratulations to the best man on this particular occasion. This was a blow to
1: German prestige and a victory for America, far out of proportion to the actual importance of the event. Horse racing gained a following, too, because of radio. Listen to the famed Whirlaway win the Kentucky Derby at Churchill Downs.
10: And Whirlaway is now making his dash in fifth place, and they're rounding the turn. And it is disposed, and Porter's cap at his head. Disposed by half a length, Porter's cap has got him, and Blue Pear is right there. Whirlaway is cutting on the inside, and if he don't get blocked, he'll give him an awful drive. And Starator is right there. Porter's cap is under a drive, heading for home. And Dispose is still there. Blue Pear cut the corner. Whirlaway has the lead by half a length. Porter's cap is gone to a drive. It's Whirl Away by half a length, but dispose is not yet beaten. Oh, no, Whirlaway pulls away. They've got 200 yards to come, and it's Whirl Away by two and a half lengths. Porter's cap is in second place. I want half length, and on the inside, pocket wise, coming with a rush, but it's Whirl Away winning the race by six lengths.
1: Did you recognize that announcer? Yes, Clem McCarthy. That was in 1941. And the only four time Kentucky Derby winner, Eddie Arcaro, the jockey. Undoubtedly, the most exciting moment in sports, though, came quite late, in fact, in 1951. Though television was on the spot too, I think that radio really captured this moment in an epic of modern baseball. The scene is Ebbets Field the New York Giants have surged from far behind to overtake the Brooklyn Dodgers and tie them for the National League Championship. A playoff round of three games was needed to decide. After two games, the Giants and the Dodgers are tied. In the third game, the Giants are at bat for the last time. Two men are on base.
4: Bobby Thompson up there swinging. He's got two out of three, a single and a double, and Billy Crouch is playing right on the third base line. One out, last of the night Back of pitches. Bobby Thompson takes a strike call on the inside corner. Bobby
5: hitting
4: at two ninety-two. He's had a single and a double, and he drove in the Giants' first run with a long fly to center. Brooklyn leads it four to two. High time, down the line at third. Not taking any chances. Loxton without too big of a lead at second, but he'll be running like the wind. If Thompson hits one. Backer throws. There's a long
5: strike! I gotta be able.
1: After the game in the Giants Clubhouse.
10: Ladies and
4: gentlemen. Up, buddy.
10: Bobby, you drove in your ni- 98th, 99th. Oh, how do you care. feel? I was the third one I drove in. Bobby Thompson,
4: uh,
10: did you fall down coming around third?
4: No one it. <laughs> you just flew high high. Kind off, Oh, of that's funny. Oh, that is.
1: Uh, you said a bad high. Oh, oh I don't
4: know. Good <laughs> living. I don't know what it is.
7: Oh, isn't
12: that wonderful?
1: While in the Brooklyn clubhouse, the hapless pitcher, Ralph Branca, comments.
12: Let me alone. Go ahead. Let me alone. Let me be, will you? You saw what happened. Things are tough enough. Yeah, I knew it was gone all the way. All I kept saying was sink, sink, sink. I knew he. Hit the ball with the uppercut, it hit the ball with overspin, it was like a curveball, it was sinking down. All I remember is seeing Paff go up against the wall, and then I was walking to the clubhouse. All I kept saying was, Why me? Why me? Why did he have to be me?
1: Just as exciting today as it was then. It ought to be
5: inconceivable that in this modern era,
4: And in the face of experience, any nation could be so foolish and ruthless as to run the risk of plunging the whole world into war by invading and violating, in contravention of solemn treaties, the territory of other nations that have done them no real harm and which are too weak to protect themselves adequately. Yet the peace of the world and the welfare and security of every nation, including our own, is today being threatened by that very thing. War is a contagion, whether it be declared or undeclared. If civilization is to survive, the principles of the Prince of Peace must be restored. Shattered trust between nations must be Revive. America hates war. America. America hopes for peace. Therefore, America actively engages in the search for peace.
1: Life went on. The depression was lifting under the impetus of war orders from Europe. The draft was a fact, but we still enjoyed concerts and movies. And professional football was getting off to a good start. The Dodgers are ready to kick off
4: now. They've just scored. Ace Parker did it. Jack Sutherland's boys lead the Giants seven to nothing. Here's the whistle. Merle Condit comes up. He boots it. It's a long one down to around the three-yard line. Ward Cup takes it. He's cutting up to his left. He's over the 10. Nice block there by Lehman. Cuff's still going. He's up to the 25. And now he's hit and hit hard about the 27-yard line. Bruiser Connard made the tackle. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Stay tuned to WOR for further developments, which will be broadcast immediately as received
0: well that's the end of the first hour but we will have more on the next hour featuring the radio reports world war ii from pearl harbor to corregidor and from d-day to final victory on air checks